we've had a good string of Sundays together um, talking about Revelation. You will all get a reprieve from me next Sunday, so feel free to, to, to outwardly express your appreciation for that. And uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm going to take some extra time to make sure that I uh, don't bungle up Lucas and Emily's wedding too badly, so that'll be my focus for some time next week, and Pastor Earl will take us through the next step of Revelation. So we'll continue on learning from that book together. You will have a different voice and a fresh perspective on that. And uh, today we are going to be in Revelation 14, and this is the beginning of Revelation 15. Now, in my family, we have two children who are now school age. Eli is in grade five, and Malachi is in grade two, and then Silas is one more year at home until his world changes in kindergarten next year. And it's really interesting for me as a parent to find out some of the parts of school that my kids like the best and some of the things that maybe aren't their favorite or a little bit boring. So sorry, Emery, as much as I'd like to report that there are no parts of school that my kids find boring, that's just not true. For Eli this year, he is now old enough to start taking choir. And choir gets off on a little bit of the wrong foot because they replace a recess time with choir. And so for my son, that is not the, the, the deal that he would maybe choose to make. But beyond that, I said, well, what, what's about choir? Like, do you enjoy it? He's like, well, I like the singing part. He's like, but the... We do the same warm-ups for half the time, every single time we do choir. It's the same thing over and over. So I found out that my son finds vocal warm-ups to be repetitive and boring. And you know what? He's probably not alone in that, though he does like the singing part. And for Malachi, he often finds that at the end of the day, if they have to do some busy work, especially coloring, just trying to, to get to the end of the day, and he knows that bell's about to ring, he, he's just like, when is that thing going to ring? And time seems to drag on for him. And as he's trying to fill time before that bell rings, the end of the day is the time that my son Malachi finds maybe the most tedious. And we also know when we're watching the clock exactly how that might feel. Thinking back to my own school experience, I, there was always parts of English class that I found to be tedious and a bit boring. Now, I liked English a lot more than math and science. I didn't like math and science, but, but they were hard. So they weren't boring. If anything, they were, they were difficult and challenging. But English always had some parts to it. Uh, you know, where they were talking about all of these different dynamics and in novels, things like foreshadowing, dramatic irony, symbolism, some of the stuff that, that they were saying, oh, the author certainly intended this to be true. And I'm like, you're just making this stuff up. No one is that smart. No one, they were just writing a good story. In fact, I put this theory to the test that, that some of this is clearly made up. Uh, for one pr- school project, we had to read the play called A Doll's House. Anyone else there ever read A Doll's House? There's a few of us that are old enough for that. Good. Good to know. And, and my buddy and I decided to work a backwards project. So we built a Lego house. And we built whatever we wanted to. And then afterwards, we set this house down and said, okay, now what can we make symbolize what? And then we just kind of made this story up. And then we presented it in class. And it was truly made up. And we still got an A. And that proved to me that at least 80% of English stuff is just made up. Well, why do I bring this up? I'm preparing you, actually no, I'm preparing myself for your eyes to glaze over because we are going to kick off this sermon today by talking about literary structure. <laughs> I know, and I've, la- I've lost half of you, I can see it already. 
Stick with me. I, I think it's going to be, I find it interesting a little bit, um, but I think it's going to be important and helpful for us. So we are going to talk about this literary structure. And we've also made mention of this maybe informally so far. We've talked about a few different times how Revelation has a cycle, has maybe a retelling. There's three patterns of judgment. Uh, it has the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and next week we'll go over the seven bulls. All of those patterns begin at the ascension of Christ and end at the second coming of Christ. There's this pattern. We've talked about literary structure a bit, but today we're going to take another look at something called chiasm or chiastic structure. And if you don't want to know what chiasm is, it's simple. It's inverted parallelism. (laughs) And now the rest of you are gone. I lost half of you at the beginning. I lost the rest of you now. It is going to make sense. Chiasm is a literary structure in which there is an inverted parallel. And a lot of Revelation, not just our passage today, but even broad structures in Revelation follow this pattern. And the pattern would go A to B to C, and then back to B, and then back to A. Make a sort of triangle. And those thoughts are related. A will relate to A, and B will relate to B. And all of that is to highlight the focal point, which is C. So enough of this theory. Enough of this theory. What does it look like today? Here is a look at how the chiasm looks in Revelation 14, verses 15 to 5, which is our passage for today. And again, you can go there in your Bible right now, and we will see a pattern emerge. And hopefully, it will be clear and easy for you to understand. And hopefully, not only will you understand it, but you'll know why I bothered even bringing it up when we start to interpret this passage. Well, it starts with a picture of the redeemed people of God singing songs to him. And then it moves to three angels making important announcements to the world. And then it moves again to that focal point, the fulcrum of the chiasm, which is the appearance of the Son of Man. And from that point, it moves back, parallel from where it came. It moves back to three angels, but instead of announcing, they will be reaping. And then once again, it moves back and we have another picture related but unique to the redeemed singing. And so the structure of our passage will be our guide, not only into keeping track of what's going on, but hopefully also understanding what's going on. And yet, even to look at the unique structure of this passage, we have to realize we're jumping right in to the middle of a bigger story, the middle of of a bigger set of visions that John is receiving. Last week, we talked about the fact that that the, the Satan, this dragon, has declared war on God's people. This is holy war. The dragon went to try to consume the pregnant woman who was the faithful remnant of Israel, but he could not. So then the devil tried to consume that child who was the Messiah Jesus, but he could not. And so now he has made war on the offspring of the woman who are the people of God, the church. And we also learned how the devil wages war in this battle. And he wages war through the two beasts, that of counterfeit power and that of counterfeit worship. I had a really good conversation with Sawyer after the service, and now he'll never talk to me again. But I talked to Sawyer, and if you know him at all, he really likes football. He's just a little bit into football. And he shared with me how he appreciated the sermon, which is why I'm sharing the story with you now. And he said, I really liked it, Pastor, but you know what? I spend a lot of my time right now studying the opposing team's playbook. And he says, your sermon, that was exactly what you were, we were doing together. We were, we were studying the opposing team's playbook. I said, you're absolutely right. I should have thought of that. That's how I should have explained it from the first place. <laughs> we know now, not just that the devil is making war on God's people, we know how he's going about doing it. 
through these pressures and the temptation to, to grab power that's not true, that's counterfeit, that doesn't hold up to the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And then also this temptation to have take place in part in counterfeit worship of something that also is not the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that not, is not the Lamb that was slain. And at the end of all of this, we were left with the name and the number and the mark of the beast to recognize this counterfeit never could um, stand up to the perfection that is Jesus, that is God. He alone is worthy of our worship, and this is now a matter of allegiance. The mark of the beast was the mark of those who have, have chosen to be, have their allegiance with the beast. They have chosen to follow him, worship him. And there's a line in the sand, and on the other side of that line is now our first picture today, a picture of the redeemed people of God, the 144,000 in Revelation 14 that are sealed or marked with the name of the Lamb and of God on their foreheads. A line has been drawn in this holy war, and you are either on one side or the other. There's no middle ground. You are either marked by the beast and are following and worshiping him, or you are marked or sealed by the Lamb with his name written on your forehead. And again, these are symbolic marks. None of us have these physical marks, but it is much, so much more of what character, who is dwelling in you, what are your priorities, who are you following, where does your worship go? That is what this mark represents. And so it is contrasted now. The 144,000 who are sealed or marked with the lamb are contrasted with those who are marked by the beast. And again, this 144,000 represent the entire, entire redeemed people of God. Um, and when we um, studied the 144,000 in greater detail, Revelation 7, we skipped ahead here to chapter 14 to realize that the way that these people are described are the way that the people of God are described elsewhere in Scripture. And so if we read again, we see that the people, 144,000, are sealed by the Holy Spirit. They're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They are followers of the Lamb that was slain, and they are firstfruits of the resurrection. Sealed, redeemed, followers, first fruits, all ways in which the 144,000 are described here and the people of God are described elsewhere. We also learn that that number also indicates to us that this is the full, complete people of God. 144,000 finds its root number in 12 times 12. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of Christ. Both represent the people of God, and yet it's 12 times 12 times 10 to the third power. It's the people of God, but exponentially more. A numberless multitude. In fact, in Revelation 7, John hears the number 144,000, but he turns and sees a numberless multitude from every nation worshiping God. So these are all of the people of God sealed by the Holy Spirit with the name of the Lamb and God on their innermost being. But there's another description in verse 4 of God's people that we didn't talk about before, and that's that the 144,000 were those who are virgins. And then I, I pause and I'm like, well, I've, I've got three kids of my own. <laughs> um, is this somehow now talking literally again? What, what does it mean that the, the redeemed people of God would be described as, as being male virgins? Like, does this exclude women? Does it exclude all married people? And no, 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 I think, again, we're missing the point. That would be pointing to the danger of, of taking things a bit too literally. This, along with the other ways that the people are described, is symbolic. And it's not uncommon at all in Old Testament prophecy to use a, an example of sexual faithfulness to represent faithfulness to the Lord and God's covenant. 
And this is the same thing that John is employing here as he's describing what he sees. The people are, are virgins, they are pure, they are sexually faithful to the Lord. And it makes even more sense when we skip ahead a few weeks from now when we talk about Babylon as being uh, represented as a harlot or a prostitute and how she is this temptress. And so, as once again, there's different language of sexual faithfulness representing faithfulness to God. So those virgins of the, the people of God are those who do not fall to the temptation of the harlot Babylon. It is another way of talking about being faithful to Jesus. Now, what we have in Revelation 14 is another glimpse of the end. Right in the middle of this holy war that's being waged between the dragon, Satan, and, and, and the offspring, God's people, in the middle of this Before it ends, we get this glimpse or this preview of how it will eventually end. And so if we we end it off at the end of chapter 13, it looks pretty dire. The dragon is waging war against God's people through these beasts, and there's warnings, and it doesn't look good for God's people. And so we are given this reminder in Revelation 14 of the fact that this is not how it ends. The redeemed will be before God. They will stand before him, and they will sing a new song. In fact, they are are playing harps and singing a new song to God. That's the way it's described in our passage. Playing harps, singing a song to God. The only thing missing from this picture is Philadelphia cream cheese. This is one of the passages in which we get some of the imagery of of heaven, of being sitting on a cloud and strumming a harp and and singing all these different songs. It's It's where we get that picture. But, of course, we've seen similar previews of the end before. We've seen it in Revelation 5. In chapter 7, later on again in Archiasm, in Revelation 15, and eventually in its fullness and completion in Revelation chapter 19. This is a glimpse of the end. The redeemed are singing before God in his presence. This is meant to bring hope into the middle of the war. The dragon and the beasts do not win. God is victorious through the lamb that was slain. That's our first picture. That is the redeemed people of God singing. And then the story moves, or the vision, I should say, moves to three angels. And what they do is they have a particular purpose. They are announcing three different messages. And this is what the first angel says. John says, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and on earth and sea and the springs of water. This is the angel proclaiming the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ to every end of the earth, to all the people of the earth. This is an important message to proclaim. And part of what this angel is declaring is that creation itself it cries out to the creator God who is worthy of worship. So do not settle For the mark of the beast, which 666, which means it's a mark of a human, which is someone incomplete, which is someone who falls short of God. He is not worthy of your worship or praise. Instead, look to the only one who is worthy, the one who has created all of these things. This warning, this announcement, really uh, brings me back to Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about much of the same message. This is what he says, picking up in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we've seen a lot of this already in Revelation. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, 
So they are without excuse. Paul is saying that God is the creator. He alone is worthy of our worship and praise. And it is through the amazing, beautiful, indescribable things that he has created that ought to lead us into not just acknowledgement of him, but worship of him, just as we sang together already today. That is part of what the angel is proclaiming, but it is only a part. This is not limited to just creation. God is using all sorts of ways and methods to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. We have read in Revelation that God was using the partial judgments of the seven trumpets to get people's attention and to call them to repentance. We know that the truth about God's nature and his character and the gospel is revealed through his word, which is left even for us here today. God makes himself known through scripture. And as we read scripture, we also learn that God sends the Holy Spirit into the world to convict the world of sin and to lead them to repentance, declaring this eternal gospel. And God, through his decision and his wisdom, has decided to go and move through the church, tasking us, the people of God, with bringing this gospel to the ends of the earth, which is another picture we got in Revelation chapter 11 of the two witnesses, calling the world to repentance through our own repentance. And ultimately, God has done all these things, but proclaims the eternal gospel about Jesus through sending his son, Jesus, to this world. That God himself would humble himself, empty himself, and and dwell among us here on earth to become fully God, fully man. To to be obedient to the will of the Father, even unto death on the cross, so that, that he would die for our sins, to offer us grace and mercy and forgiveness. And not only offer us this forgiveness, but then conquer death itself. To be resurrected three days later and so that in him we may not only have forgiveness, but life everlasting. And as we again bring this into Revelation language, we know that this eternal gospel offers us the ability to overcome. The lamb that was slain in the middle of the throne is the one who has overcome even death itself. And so this is the eternal gospel because it matters for eternity. That's the announcement of the first angel. And then the second angel announces, and he, he's a little different. He doesn't use a loud voice, but he says something after the first angel saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So again, we get a, a better understanding of why the pure people of God would have been described as virgins, this faithfulness to the Lord as opposed to the unfaithfulness of following a sexual immorality that is represented by Babylon. And who is Babylon? Well, Babylon is Rome. We don't need to overcomplicate it. It was written in fairly coded language for the initial hearers of this word, but everyone would have understood that Babylon is Rome in the day that this is being distributed and and read in different churches in the first century. Rome and Babylon really represent any nation or force that leads people to oppose God. And her fall is inevitable, even though at the time this was written, at the time this was heard, that didn't seem like, a, like an inevitability. It didn't seem like Rome was going to fall. But did Babylon fall? Did Rome fall? Did she fall to the Lamb? We know through history that that is absolutely true. There is more that we are going to learn about the fall of Babylon in a few weeks, and so we will leave it be for now. And the third angel then warns of the dangers of following the beast. The first angel calls people to follow the lamb by proclaiming the eternal gospel. And then uh, the third angel is contrasted to that. He said with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image 
and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is a stark, stark warning about the dangers of following the beast, about the dangers of being on the wrong side of holy war. This picture that is given is one of complete and final judgment to all opposed God who worship the enemy, everybody that stands against the lamb that was slain. And this picture of what we can rightfully call hell is one of torment, of, of one of, of pain and suffering, of one that does not allow somebody rest. And even the words we just read says this goes on forever and ever. And this is again opposed to the fate or contrasted with the fate of those who die in the Lord and their ability now to be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. And in fact, John goes on to describe that while those who had the mark of the beast have no rest, that blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they will find their rest. Which really leads us to where we say rest in peace. This is where we get part of that phrase from. This is the fate of the wicked for those who do not heed the warning. And it brings us then to that focal point, that fulcrum of our chiasm. At the end of this picture of the redeemed people of God singing and the warnings or the announcements of the angels, we see the Son of Man appear in Revelation 14, 14. One verse only, but clearly the highlight. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle on his hand. One like a son of man. Well, we've been introduced to this one like a son of man already in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, and we knew from that passage that this represented Jesus in the midst of the lampstands, Jesus in the midst of the churches, in the midst of his people. And the same one like a son of man now appears in Revelation 14. He's also being described as, as being seated on a cloud, which further draws us to that initial uh, uh, vision that Daniel had, in which all of this is based off of Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man will come on a cloud. And all of this gives us a glimpse that this is not just a picture of Jesus, but it's a picture of Jesus on a specific day, at a specific time, on the day of his return. We are reading about the very end. And so some of you have been wondering, when are we going to get to the end? Well, we are reading about it now. We know this because Jesus himself has described it in very similar language in Luke chapter 21, verses 25 and following. This is what he says to his followers. He says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. Hmm. I think we've read something about that recently in Revelation. And on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
This is good news for all the people of God, for all of those who follow Jesus. He will one day return in full power, in full glory, the Son of Man on this cloud. And when that day comes, we will be ecstatic and we will raise our heads. We will raise our voices and our hearts and our souls because we know now our redemption is at hand. Our redemption is here. And that matters for how we understand Revelation 14 because now the Son of Man is returning on a cloud and he has a sickle in his hand. And this sickle represents our redemption that Jesus was talking about in Luke 21. Because Jesus is now going to reap and he is going to gather his harvest. He is going to gather his people to himself once and for all. That is the picture of the Son of Man. He is going to gather And then the three angels now are the ones that announce or even enact this reaping that will take place, following in verse 15. The first angel then calls on Jesus to reap the earth because the harvest is ripe. We have this reaping of the earth, and then we have the reaping of the grapes. And both of these draw us back to Joel, the prophecy of Joel, and what what he calls the day of the Lord, when the Lord will judge the nations. Chapter 3, verse 13 Joel says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. The day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, judgment day, that is what's being enacted in the visions John's receiving here today, in line with the visions that Joel saw all those years before. And here, here we now get to the part where I believe it's important for us to know the chiasm that our passage is a part of. Because what the angels say and do in the second part here, in this reaping, is paralleled with what they just announced previously before. These angels, the three angels in their activities, are parallel to one another. So the first angel then reaps this harvest. And in the first announcement, the angel proclaimed the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. The eternal gospel went forward. And then the first reaping is reaping the results of that gospel. This is now Jesus, the Son of Man, in his return, reaping, gathering, harvesting his people to himself. And this is a good thing. This is the redemption of God's people. This is the day that we look forward to where we can be with the Lord forever. He announced the gospel, and now they are reaping the rewards of the gospel when it was received by those who listened. Then we have the second angel, just like the the angel that announced that the second angel is not the focal point in either one of these things. All the second angel does here is he picks up another sickle. So the announcement of the second angel was that Babylon is about to fall. It's inevitable. Prepare for that. And the second angel here is preparing to reap. Not a lot of action. It is just another preparation. But the third angel calls on the second angel to reap the grapes that are ripe. And here we have a very, very difficult passage. The third angel came out from the altar. This is the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And I would really love 
to be able to preach through the book of Revelation and not talk about this passage. And if I were to do so, I would be a cowardly pastor. (laughs) And so as much as we had to skip over some sections, we're not given that luxury here. This is a terrible, horrific vision that John receives. And we know that just as that parallel was, that first angel announced the gospel and Jesus reaped those who responded to the gospel, that third angel announced the warning of what it would mean to follow and worship the beast. And then this third angel is now reaping the consequences of those who have decided to not heed that warning and to continue follow and worship the beast. This is a picture of the destruction of the wicked. And where is Jesus in this picture? Where is the Son of Man? He made this important important appearance. He's the the highlight of the whole passage. And Jesus reaps the people that draws to himself. Where is he now? Well, we know in Revelation 19 that Jesus is still part of this picture. He is not reaping. He is the one treading the winepress. We see this in Revelation 19 where Jesus' return is described in another way as, as him being a rider on a white horse. And Revelation 19.15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword and with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Same fulfillment of the prophecy we saw last week in Revelation 12. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. That's Jesus. Jesus is still in this story. He's still in this vision. He is the one who is treading the winepress of the wrath of God. A wrath that is so utterly complete that blood will flow as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is just an enormous section of land. And again, that number is not a statistic, it's a symbol. The root number of 1,600 is 40, and 40 is always a number of judgment in Scripture, whether it is the 40 years in the wilderness or the 40 days of the flood. 40 exponentially more, this is complete and final judgment. It is a terrible vision that we've seen. And I, I looked for many different ways to try to soften the blow. Maybe some commentator that looked at it from a different view that I thought maybe would be easier to, to swallow. But that's not the case. It's meant to be a terrible vision because it is a terrible fate. And how can this be? You may be thinking, I am not comfortable with this. I, I don't like this at all. How can a loving God do this? How can a loving God, how can the lamb that was slain, Jesus, be the one who treads on this winepress? I think we need to remind ourselves of a few other truths in order to make sense of it all. First, this vision that John sees is a fate that all of us deserve. All of us deserve. Our sin has declared us guilty, as as Paul writes in Romans 3.23, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So left to our own devices, this is our fate. This is our destiny. This is what we deserve. Because as as Paul also writes later on in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so this deserving of this fate is not the end of the story. It's not the entire story. God is patient, and he has been constantly calling out to everybody in the world for them to repent, for them to return to him, for them to follow the lamb that was slain. And so we can't divorce this image of judgment. We can't rip it out of the context of the many different warnings 
and the many different, offering, different opportunities to follow Jesus that have preceded the vision that we see here at the end of all things. Whether it's the partial judgments, whether it's the witness of the church, whether it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, whether it's the thousands of years that God is waiting for people to come back to Him, the Lord has been patient. He is giving people every opportunity to change their mind. And so we can't divorce the outcome of, of the people who decide to follow the beast from the warning that the angel gives first. This never happens without warning. In fact, God did not even wait for us to be interested in him, be interested in repenting and following him before offering us a way out. Following that Romans road in 5.8, we see that God shows his love for us in that while we were, while we were still sinners, while we still deserve this fate, while we still were opposed to him. Christ died for us. He loved us first. He shed his blood first so that if there is any way possible in our heart and our mind and our soul that our blood may be spared. This way out of the wrath that we deserve and into the forgiving arms of Jesus is available to everyone. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To borrow Revelation language, we know that this salvation that's being proclaimed and offered by that angel is being proclaimed to every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. Jesus desires all people to return to him. Lastly, this gruesome picture of judgment in our passage is God legitimizing human choice. He has given warnings. He has given time. He has, he has called out to people to return to him. But he has also decided that he will give legitimate uh, consequences. He will legitimize the choice of people. So if people choose not to heed these warnings, if people choose to oppose God, in Revelation, if they choose to worship the beast, if they choose to refuse his free gift of forgiveness and grace and mercy, then this is the final outcome. God honors that choice. And God's wrath is not punitive. God's wrath poured out on evil, is to eradicate evil once and for all so that we may live in the hope where there is no more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more evil. And so you're thinking, okay, that's great. It's really cute, Pastor Andrew. You talked through the Romans road. That's awesome. You've talked a lot about the gospel. This is great, but I still don't like it. How can this picture exist in the word of God? It makes me uncomfortable. And I tell you this, good. None of us should be unmoved by this picture. This should bother us deeply. And I promise that I will never be a pastor who takes any pleasure in reading about the judgment at the, end of, at the end of days. I do not like it. None of us should like it. It's written this way so that we will not like it. We should be uncomfortable. Regardless of our comfort level, it's part of Scripture. And how should we respond? This is the question. And it's really quite simple. Why is this in Revelation? Why is this warning given? Why is this vision so extreme? Well, the first way that we need to respond is we need to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. We need to cry out to Jesus and say, I follow you. I trust you. I worship you. When that line is drawn in holy war, I know what side I'm on. So if you have not done that today, then waste no time because the stakes are too high. And if you are not sure, then waste no time. And just crying out to Jesus because you don't have to, to get your life together. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to earn anything. You don't deserve anything. This is a gift freely given. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. 
It is that simple today. But if you've already done this, and you already know that your salvation and your inheritance is guaranteed and sealed by the Spirit, then this should not bring you fear. Because the people of God have nothing to fear from God. This is not written to make you doubt your salvation. This is meant to give you hope. The people of God have nothing to fear from God. So do not read fear into this passage. Instead, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And if you've already done that, then there is a second way to respond. And that's by joining that first angel to proclaim the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone who will even half-heartedly listen. Because what this picture in Revelation tells us is that the stakes are far too high to be silent. And if we love people, if we care about them, and we read this and understand and believe the truth of what Revelation shows us will be the end, then we need to not waste any time in living, sharing, loving, teaching, talking, acting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that if there's any way that even one other person can stand and be part of the redeemed singing instead of the other fate, that we can say we did our part. We did our best to help proclaim that eternal gospel. So what do we do when we encounter these uncomfortable passages of judgment? We trust in Jesus, and then we do everything we can to encourage other people to do the same. And I'm very thankful today that this picture is not the one that we are left with. There is one more part of the chiasm, and that is, again, another glimpse of the redeemed singing. As we go through this, I'll invite the worship team to come up and get prepared. We're going to sing one more song in response. Revelation 15 begins with the end of holy war. It's another glimpse of the end, but maybe not a preview. Maybe now Jesus, the Son of Man, has returned. Maybe now the judgment of God has been poured out in its fullness, and we get a true glimpse of the end, chronologically speaking. And in this glimpse of the end, God's people are standing by the sea, singing the song of Moses right after God has delivered them from their enemies. And that is a very familiar story. As thousands of years ago, the children of Israel stood by the Red Sea, singing the song of Moses after God had delivered them from Pharaoh and the enemies of Egypt. This is the new exodus. This is the fulfilled exodus. This is no longer God's deliverance for a specific group of people at a specific moment in time, and only that time in history, this is now God's complete deliverance of all of his people for all of time. And they sing a new song with praise. The holy war is over. The last words of this war are praise to God. And I invite you now to stand. And as you stand, I'd also ask that you close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm going to read for you the final words of praise of the people that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And with that, we will sing in response. Listen to these words. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed.